Welcome to Career Tools, our guidance on asymmetric negotiation. Here we go. Folks, this guidance answers your questions about what is negotiation asymmetry, how might you be able to get more power in a negotiation, and what are good negotiation objectives. If your knowledge of DISC, high Ds, I's, S's, and C's, the perfectionists, the Attila, the Huns, the marketers, the team players, if that has helped you become more effective at work, you'll want to seriously consider coming to our Effective Communications Conference. We set the basics of DISC in an hour or so, and then we spend the rest of the day teaching you how finally to communicate effectively, which is to pay attention to what your listener does and communicate in a way that makes sense to them. At the end of the day, you'll be able to read someone in a conversation, determine their major DISC tendency, and then based on that, make some changes in how you deliver to improve the chances that you get harmony and congruence and collaboration and not drama, conflict, and tension. Come see us. So, Wendy, the fact is, when it comes to negotiations, there's generally one party with more power, even though both parties have different forms of power, and one party invariably has the upper hand, and you may not have that upper hand, and you need to consider that and think about the relative amounts of power and where your power is, and there's a way to approach that that will simplify it in the event, particularly you're on the weaker side, quote-unquote weaker side of negotiation, right? But even being on the more powerful side, having more power, that can also be problematic in the relationships between two people. Yeah, it can be problematic. The way to th I think the way to think about it is not, I, most people wouldn't say, oh yeah, more power is problematic. It just creates different questions and different problems to solve. <laughs> so that's that nice problem to have thing, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, so we're gonna talk about how to account for asymmetry, not counting on power, having multiple objectives, and not negotiating in isolation. And bosses, if you send somebody in negotiation, you say, I want everything, it's your fault when things don't go well. And if, you, if there are three things to go for and you say they're all equal, again, it'll be your fault if it doesn't turn out well. I hate that. Oh, everything's important. No, you have to make tough calls sometimes. If everything's important, nothing's important. Yeah. So account for asymmetry. We said that there's usually, that there is almost always an asymmetry between the players because one person has one thing and the other person wants that thing. If they both had it, then there wouldn't be any need for a negotiation. And if neither of them had it, there still wouldn't be a need. So there's always going to be asymmetry. Yeah. And what that means is if you don't see it, if you think this is just tit for tat, A for B, then you're probably not thinking carefully enough. Exactly. And it's rare that there's a straight swap as well. It's rare that, you know, somebody says, I need this system and IT says, oh, I happen to have two people you can have to make it. That doesn't happen either. So there's always a need to negotiate to fit what you want with what they have. Yeah. Yeah. The comment, life is not like a board game. And one of the reasons people like board games is the rules are clear. The rules are always enforced. The goals are clear, and the path to the goal is fairly narrow across the board for everyone. Part of the reason we like games, part of the reason we like watching sports, is because 
All of those things that make day-to-day -day life more complex, more complicated, everything's in play in various ways. Yes, you can make more money at work, but you may have to take time away from your family, for instance, or you may have to take more trips at a time when you have a small child at home or whatever. Board games eliminate all that and say, we're going to put in place all these parameters that make very clear what the issues are. Even Risk, which for a long time was thought of as this great strategy game, is really rolling the dice and deciding who, who to attack with how many and so on. And the number of choices you have are exceptionally limited compared to real life. And in negotiation, there will be complexity. And everybody wants to make it simple because it's easier to think about simple things. But I think it was Einstein, but maybe it was somebody else who said the key to life is, or the key is to make things as simple as possible and no simpler. I think you're right. I think it is Einstein. Yeah, as a general rule in negotiation, you're not going to make it simplistic. You might simplify, but be careful about trying to make it super simplistic. And even in internal departments, there usually is asymmetry. Even if you think, well, we're both in the same company, why would it be that one party has more power or more trust or more money or whatever? Because the departments aren't equal in companies. <laughs> for, for example, we know that marketing and sales say, I want, and IT has to answer, how high should I jump, yes. right? Because marketing and sales can make a really easy case. They can, they can directly link what they want to revenue. They always say, you know, well, if I have this, then I can make four times as much revenue as I would do normally, right? And, that, and for the business, that's a really easy decision to make. Let's mar uh, marketing, yes, you can have that, and IT, start jumping. Because revenue is the most important thing. But when it's a different, when it's a, a support department, it, then it's different. If it's legal or HR, then they're much less likely to get what they want because they can't tie it to revenue. Uh, they could maybe tie it to reducing costs, but not in the in the kind of numbers that marketing might be talking about increasing revenue. And I also think that one of the things that when we have this asymmetry between, between marketing and sales and IT or any other internal organization, but lately in the last 20 years, IT has been huge. The problem is IT wants to say no and here's why or here are your choices or whatever. And they can completely change the negotiations if they'll say yes, we want to help you do that too. And usually sales and marketing is like, wow, okay, great. And then when IT says, and we have limitations, not we'd love to do that, but we can't. That's not what I'm saying. It's, hey, we'd love to do that. And there are some limitations here. Help us with how we should position those limitations with you and we'll work with you to get it done. That's not to say there isn't some asymmetrical negotiator on the other side who's a jerk and thinks it's all about power. That happens too. But the vast majority of times, We've talked about relationships forever and ever when it comes to negotiations and everything else as well. I just had a call with a manager at Apple about having to help him with relationships. But so often, part of the asymmetry is you thinking of it from your perspective, not thinking about it from their perspective, and perhaps just being able to say, I'm aware that I work for you. I'm aware of the asymmetry. Yes, we're going to figure out a way to do this for you, and we have to do it within our own boundaries. What so many asymmetrically weak parties in negotiating negotiations do is say no. And all that does is increase the chances the other party will use their power rather than the relationship, rather than the process to get what they want.
you're almost asking for it if you say no. If somebody says no and I know my department needs it, I just go to my boss. It's like, I could, it's all right, yeah. I'll just jump right, right over you. So when we start planning for any negotiation, and if you haven't got this already, you do actually have to plan what your strategy is for a negotiation. You have to take account of the, the asymmetry, whether or not you think you've got the upper hand. So if we think about those two examples we just gave about IT working for marketing or IT working for HR, they're in two different roles in the two different situations. And like you said, IT has to, has to jump when marketing says jump, but that doesn't mean they have to agree to everything. And the way to fail on projects is to let the people with ideas, you know, or the people who are get very excited, who work in marketing, um, let them dictate the whole project and have all the bells and whistles and change their mind 50 times and all that stuff. That's what happens to IT projects. Even if IT is a smaller player, they can work to limit the scope and establish the quality standard and cut the costs from the project and therefore successfully deliver it even though they may think they're having to say yes to a department that's more powerful than them. Yeah. On the other hand, HR are way down the priority list and they usually know it. No offense to HR. No, it's all about being a support department. Right. So IT now has the upper hand because their resources potentially have more value working somewhere else rather than designing something for HR. And so IT could just say no, which IT says a lot. Um, they could say they don't have enough manpower or the project isn't important enough. But HR, if they're smart, has some leverage. IT needs friends in HR because they usually have lots of contractors. And if they don't, they're about to make everybody a contractor. And you need HR to help you do that. What if you want to make them redundant? Or what if you want 20 new developers in the next four weeks? Who's going to get that for you? For you Americans, the Brit on this call just said, make them redundant, which is to say, lay them off. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. My parents have been here. I've reverted to English. Yes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so the IT director in different places needs HR support. So there is power within yes. HR. It might not be about this project, but you do have... Not something you can hold over them, but but something that balances the power or the the influence you have over the negotiation. Yeah, and that leads us to the idea that we can't count on power. You just can't. And there are people who are saying, wait, I remember a negotiation where that's what I did and I got it. Yes, and probably you damage relationships. Folks, remember, negotiations are not transactional, Okay. I work with some people who are very transactional in nature. They think about the thing we're doing at the time. And sometimes there's winning or losing or whatever. And they never consider the impact on the relationship of getting the win, getting, you know, okay, I'll do that. Okay, I'll do that. And then they hear me say them say to them, hey, listen, this isn't working for me. This is no longer an effective situation for me. And they're just stunned. So, well, we've been getting what we want out of it. I said, yeah, but I don't have to do this and I don't want to do it anymore. And if all you do is think about power and you've gotten things, you are not negotiating or you've been in negotiations 
but you're not negotiating in an ethical, responsible way that will take you to the next level when you're talking about a billion-dollar deal, when you're an executive vice president, when there are 13 different parties involved, when there are counterparties and subparties and other people to keep happy. And you'll discover that all those negotiation, quote-unquote, wins that you have did not prepare you. It looks like you've done lots of negotiations. Your CEO will think you learned what you need to learn, but now you'll fail spectacularly, perhaps when you're doing a big negotiation your first time as an executive, because you didn't realize that power is diffuse at senior levels. We've said it here a hundred times. When you look up at the top of your organization, what you think of as politics, those people at the top think of as collaboration and negotiation. And you're not going to have power. And if you don't learn it now, if you're a young manager, young professional, individual contributor, director, whatever, if you don't learn these subtleties now, there's going to come a comeuppance. Unless you're thinking, no, I don't ever want to do that. Fine. Um, of course, you'll tick a lot of people off in, your, in the process and people won't want to work with you um, or negotiate with you. So that's not in our notes, but... It was worth it. I know there are people who are saying right now, hey, I, you know, I actually use power all the time in negotiations and it works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people hate you, but people are too nice to say it. <laughs> so the biggest example I could think of for a David and Goliath. And, and I love this one, by the way. It's one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> what David can do to Goliath, even though Goliath thinks they have all the power, is the rights that nation states give to the U.S. military. So the U.S. is, what are they, leaders of the free world and... Yeah, you have you have in the notes arguably the most powerful nation on earth. I mean, I, yes, I mean, even if I'm not it, here, would I wouldn't. I mean, come on, seriously, I wouldn't argue that China is bigger, uh, or that India is more populous, or that Britain is cooler, or that France is more stylish. <laughs> but powerful? Come on. That's the difference between being brought up on different sides of the pond. I think because Britain still believes that we're. We just we're like the the hand that rocks the cradle. Ah. You just notice. You just don't notice. <laughs> That's funny. They could get everything let's they wanted. Let's assume if I'm yeah. Let, let's assume, let me try and put myself there. The U.S. is the biggest country in terms of how much money, in terms of how many people there are of of a certain standing. I think India's got more people, but they don't have the wealth and so on and you would think that the us can get anything they want but when they're in a, a war zone you don't put the bases where the airplanes are flying from in the war zone you put it somewhere nearby where it's peaceful where you can repair them and your guys can have r and r and all that kind of stuff so the ones going out to the Middle East or in Germany or France or some of those other countries or uh, North Africa. And so the US has to go ask, excuse me, can we fly our jets over your country? And yes, we're going to this country and we're taking bombs with us. People say no. Yeah, people say no. We have to ask. Yeah. Yeah. France has said no over certain airstrikes. Like France yes, said no. Yes, they have. <laughs> to uh, I think it was Syria. They thought that yes. the, the mission in was... Libya, Libya as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's even a better one than this. I mean, I hate to bring it up because we have so many friends in Italy who are listening. But the Allies during World War II, if we're going to use power, the brutest, ugliest form of power that 
the fact that it's ugly doesn't change the fact that it exists, but the campaign in Italy during World War II, the Allies agreeing to attack Italy, was largely political. It was militarily not a smart thing to do, but it didn't matter. I mean, it had to be done politically, and I have a very good friend who will tell you part of the reason he didn't want to be in the military was because big decisions like that had to be made that were political. Um, there were people who would say, General Eisenhower, who was the leader of the Allied forces in World War II, that he was a politician. And people say it with derision that, you know, well, he wasn't a great commander in the field. Well, no, he wasn't. And his job was, in fact, to be in politics and to agree to things that kept the coalition together. The person who was considered by many people the greatest tactical person, the greatest get-things-done guy was Patton. Well, you know, and talk about not right. a politician. My gosh. Gee whiz. So, yeah, I mean, relationships and politics matter, and economic and military power seem to suggest, wow, if you really wanted it, you could absolutely get it. But in fact, no, the smaller countries have something that we needed, and there are good reasons why they would say no. And it doesn't ruin our relationship. There are too many cases in business where people don't know the subtleties of negotiation, don't think about asymmetrical power in negotiations and play black and white. Well, if you don't do this, I'm going to tell my boss. And you get what you want, but you burn a bridge. And then you wonder why when you get to the top, you can't get things done. It's one of the reasons why young executives fail. And maybe you don't get fired. You just don't get to have any more authority ever again. And you wonder why you've plateaued. It's because you haven't learned about politics and subtlety and things like power. So you can't count on it. So over and over and over again, I see this happen. And it's part of the subtle learnings that are easy to miss if you're in the department in a company that has a lot of power. You're in software development. You want something from support, from finance, from HR, from, I, from IT, not development, or from legal, and you don't get it. And you push and you get it, but then you wonder why you know, you're the boy who cried wolf. And when there's actually a problem, you can't get it done. Yeah. So some other examples, if there's one factory that has a specialized widget that HP needs to build their computer, that factory has the same amount of power almost as HP does because they have something that HP needs. If you have an incumbent customer who you've got the process set up and your POs go straight over there and they get paid and all those things, that customer has more power than you might think because the ease of doing business with him is much higher than a new customer. Even if that new customer might pay more, they might do it on 90 day terms, whereas your your customer, your customer pays more quickly, uh, the current one. So there's all sorts of different things that are just not about the economics or the size or other kind of really obvious measures of power. Yeah. But there's other things, much more subtle things, as you said, that can balance people out. And so you might think you have all the power or you might think I have none. And in both cases, you're probably wrong because there's probably something balancing it out. Good. And speaking of balancing, most negotiations, people who are good at them, um, know that they ought to have multiple objectives. Because if you only have one, particularly if it's everything, you A, haven't thought things through, and B, you run a greater risk of failing completely. Um, yeah. So that's why we say have multiple objectives. 
Yeah, because you're developing a relationship. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You, you say you're developing a relationship and people are like, well, really, no, I'm negotiating. No, the point is whether you realize it or not, you're affecting the relationship you're having with someone. You can maybe get what you want, but as my dad used to tell me, you can take more than you give, for, but only for a little while until they run you out of time. To, mm -hmm. Until they run you out of town, sorry. And so, yeah, you, you think, oh, I'm not really doing that. I'm just trying to get this negotiation done. Nope, you're affecting the relationship. If you get what you want at the experience, expense of the relationship, it can be a pyrrhic victory. You can win the battle and you could end up losing the war. But the war is happening at a different level than you're aware of. And the thing that people would say that you needed in a negotiation is power. We've already said that that's not necessarily true. But the second thing is trust. And trust relies on relationships every time. And so you have to be having a conversation other than, you know, he proposes 10 cents and you propose six and you agree on eight. That's okay. But if there's nothing outside of that, he might not come down from 10. And next time he might say, well, I came down to eight last time and I'm not coming down from 10 this time. Whereas yeah. if you've built a relationship, he might tell you why he won't come down from 10. And then you can maybe make some compromise. Yeah, and this goes to the issue of trust. We talk about power and people like to talk about power when they have it. But power can be a force and trust can be a lubricant. Without any lubricant, it takes more power, more force to get something done. And if you have great relationships, you have more trust, you have more lubrication, you don't need as much power, pure power, to get things done. So you need to add the goal of building trust, which comes from relationships, which comes from communication, to all of your negotiations that negotiations are not just getting what you want. They're getting what you want at a net neutral or positive to the relationship. Now, if you add that in, the moment you add that in, even if you have power, relative asymmetrical superior power of some form, like your development and somebody else's IT or somebody else's finance or your marketing and you're talking to IT, if you add that, suddenly you realize, oh, if that's the case, if I only use power, I get what I want, but I have a net negative. If it's not an objective about the, the maintaining or improving the relationship, then you don't care. You get what you want, but you end up burning bridges that you'll need later on. If you add that in, suddenly you realize, maybe I can get what I want, but I may have to give something else somewhere else in some other fashion in order to have it to be a net neutral or perhaps even positive on the relationship. Imagine being the one department that IT says, I love working with those guys. They know what they want. They're willing to work to get what they want, but they also understand that we're going to see them again next week, next quarter, next day in the hallway and they're going to need us again, it would be good if we were motivated to help them. And they're always willing to be flexible about stuff. And that's why when we do stuff for them, we always do the, say, the things we say we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. That, that whole thing about seeing them again, I was thinking about where you, while you were starting to say that. I was thinking about, well, what, in what cases would you only negotiate with, what, with a person once? And the only one I can think of is some really huge project like, I don't know, installing SAP or something. But then you've got to work with those people side by side for like two years to do it. So there's never a case where the negotiation is just a one-off and you never need to talk to those people again. 
Yeah. The only reason you wouldn't negotiate with somebody again is because the person changed. And part of the reason organizations exist is that a person represents a department. And when you develop a relationship with that person, there's something about that person, even when they leave, there's a remnant of your trust building with that department. It's not as strong ever as it will be with individuals because departments don't relate. People do. Guys, simply adding relationship net neutrality Ooh, that's a bad phrase, net neutrality, <laughs> yeah. or or net positive. I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to build the relationship. Then suddenly you realize, in order to get what I want, if it's against what they want, I have to give them some of what they want, and that may mean taking more detail about the one big thing I want, breaking it down into four or five components, and getting the two that really matter, and giving up things on the other three. That's when you're starting to think about asymmetric negotiation. And that leads us into our last point, which is not negotiating in isolation. Yeah. Right? We've already really kind of... We've talked about it. Over and over and over again. (laughs) If all it was was numbers, then we could have two computers negotiate. Because that's what the stock market does, doesn't it? Those supercomputers that work really fast, they don't talk to humans. They're just uh, making trades with the market based on parameters that the humans put in. But for every other case, or for, for you know, the majority of other cases, humans need to be involved. And if there's people involved, there's all sorts of things that are going on in their heads at the same time as they're trying to work out the math of what they're going to trade. There's stuff that goes on at home. There's stuff going on in the company. There's, you know, the row you had earlier. There's the prize you got earlier that's made you really happy and you can't concentrate. So the you've got to account for those things when you're negotiating so maybe somebody will be really hard to negotiate with and that's just because they're having a bad day and if you come down hard on them the next time when they're having a better day will be harder yep and the goals and the priorities of departments and and companies change and if you're negotiating over a long time those those goals and priorities are more than likely to change And you want someone who will change with you because they trust you and they understand that you know what's important and you're only bringing it into the negotiation if it is important. Yeah, there's a thing in the NFL. We've done a bunch of work for the NFL, the National Football League, American football, not actual football, but American football. And one of the things that happens is at the start of a game, generally most companies, most teams' offenses, the first 20 plays are scripted. They want to see what the defense does to those plays. There's a kind of an unwritten rule that the great coaches are the ones that can win in the second half of the game because that's when they make significant adjustments based on what they've learned about what happened in the first half. There is no good team that doesn't have, in fact, there's no team anymore that doesn't have a part of its team, the scout team, the opposing team, that plays like the team they're going to play against when they're practicing the week before. They learn in advance about the person on the other side of the negotiation for the land <laughs> and the ball and the money and the, the yardage and the touchdowns and the points, okay? If you're going to be good, you have to know not just about the topic, but also about the individual you're talking to, the company you're dealing with, and the forces that they're acting on them. You have to have some opposition research. Unfortunately, right now, another way that people get their news and so on, there's all kinds of discussion in politics about operation 
uh, it's called oppo in the political world, where where basically opposition is all about painting the opponent as bad, whether it's anybody in your party or somebody in the other party. And that happens, and people say, yeah, I don't like politics. Well, part of the reason is because you get fed a steady diet of oppo, of negative stuff about people, and you begin to hate all of them. But you don't have the luxury of one person winning and one person losing, the other person going away the way that happens in elections, at least in the U.S., And folks, if you don't like what you see in politics right now, that's a great reminder of why what we're telling you relative negotiations makes sense. You're acting as part of a larger, more complex situation and understanding the situation and understanding that all the players will be there. Even in fact, if you decide not to use a given external vendor, they will still be a vendor for that and somebody else will create a relationship with them or their salespeople will still be talking to your company and you'll have to reconsider them at some later point. Mm-hmm. To be a good negotiator, you need to have thought about the bigger picture and how it'll affect you and your organization and the people across from you at the table. So summarize for us. We talked about accounting for asymmetry. We talked about not counting on power and thinking about the relationships and all the other influences. We talked about having multiple objectives and we just talked about never negotiate in isolation. Good. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everybody. That's it. Come back next week for more career guidance from the folks at Manager Tools and Career Tools. See you then. Career Tools produces actionable guidance for professionals every week. To receive additional materials via our newsletter and to find products for situations you may face, go to www.managertools.com. Search for Career Tools on Twitter and LinkedIn.